This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, we are living in very strange and difficult times for many people financially in the public service and in nurses, doctors, anyone working in the public service. People can't afford to find somewhere to live. It's the appalling vista in health and housing in particular for most people in this country. There is, of course, the reason for this is the big wide financial world and two important stories broke in the last seven days. The first one concerns Ireland and our corporation tax. Between now and 2026, we understand that we will have approximately 65 billion in corporation tax, which will be a mind-boggling sum uh, compared to uh, almost any other European country. The other and arguably greater threat to everybody's well-being is an announcement by the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, which he repeated yesterday, that by June the 1st, the U.S. government could have run out of money, which means effectively that the Biden administration has hit what's called the debt ceiling. If that were to happen, and if the United States was to default, that would have very serious consequences for the United States and indeed for the whole world. To discuss both of these stories, we're joined now by one of Ireland's best economists and most respected economist, Jim Power. Jim, thank you very much for joining us. These are huge stories. The arguably, of course, our corporation tax windfall, as it were, is very important. And what we do with it is very important. But the American story about the debt ceiling, debt ceilings have been reached and passed before. It requires the agreement of Congress with the president. And given the volatility in the House of Representatives at the moment, there's no guarantee that will emerge. Could you give us an idea, Jim, of the consequences of a U.S. default, which Janet Yellen is warning against, and she's warning... That's twice she's issued this warning in the last fortnight. Hello, Eamon. Good to talk again. Um, Yeah, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has written a letter to Congress uh, basically warning that 
the US is reaching a point where it might not be able to pay its debts uh, by early June. Okay, and this is because the US is up against its debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is basically a political device that places a hard limit on the gross government borrowing of the United States. And that debt ceiling is currently set at $31.4 trillion, which is equivalent to 117% of GDP. And because the US economy is consistently running significant budget deficits, that debt ceiling is now being reached. Uh, this year, it is estimated that the US will run a budget deficit of 5.8% of GDP. That's down from 12.4% last year. And that is largely because, number one, the US economy has slowed down on the back of higher interest rates. And secondly, uh, the Biden administration particularly has spent money aggressively to try and um, you know, deal with cost of living crisis, dealing with the COVID pandemic over the last few years. And um, I guess also Biden would have an ideological leaning towards spending money. So the debt ceiling is now being reached. And um, if agreement is not reached over the next few days, and it has to happen over the next few days, really, because uh, once an agreement, if it's reached, it then has to pass through Congress. And that could take a week or thereabouts, um, at which stage the debt ceiling would be reached. So time is of the essence at this stage. And uh, there's, there's a couple of issues at play here. There is the very um, bipartisan nature of the U.S. political system. Um, and, and this predates Trump. But the antagonism and animosity and basically civil war footing of the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, has really, really escalated in recent years. But I stress this does predate Trump, because if you think back on guys like Newt Gingrich some years back, you know, the that the, the U.S. political system has become incredibly divided and divisive. It was obviously exacerbated by the advent of Donald Trump in 2016 thereafter. Uh, but now, you know, we are playing politics. Um, the Republicans are playing hardball with the Democrats because um, from a Republican perspective, politically, it might look good to have the Democrat Party um, in power for the first time that the U.S. ever defaulted on its debt. So there is that bipartisan political issue and pressure going on there. And the second issue, of course, is that the Republicans uh, ideologically would not be in favor, at least, at least in theory, would not be in favor of high levels of government spending, particularly in areas of social protection. And, and health and so on. So there's, there's a couple of political um, things at play here, which is making it very, very difficult to actually reach an agreement. Um, one suspects, um, and, and I suppose the likelihood has reduced somewhat, but one suspects that w they will go to the wire and eventually a deal will be reached and the US will avoid defaulting on its debt. But for example, if a deal were not reached, um, it would mean that the United States would not be able to pay down the debt that is maturing. So that's effectively a technical 
default. And um, secondly, it would not be able to fund the ongoing running of the country and, you know, the delivery of public services and so on. So from an economic perspective, this would really, really throw a spanner into the wheels of commerce in the U.S. economy because a lot of companies um, and indeed in the whole world of trading, uh, treasury bills are used as collateral and they are regarded as the most uh, risk-free and liquid asset you could possibly have. Uh, but if it was not possible to roll over those treasury bills and pay them back and borrow more, well, then the whole system would come crashing down very, very quickly. So economically, it is a serious, serious threat to the U.S. economy. Yes, and the House of Representatives is controlled now by the Republicans, and Kevin McCarthy, who's the Speaker of the House of Representatives, is third in line for the White House if something should happen to the President Vice President. McCarthy is a Trump follower to the point where Donald Trump calls him my Kevin. He has a very tenuous hold on power uh, because the deal he did to become Speaker of the House of Representatives is contingent on unanimity. And one dissenting voice can have him up for re-election again. He's in a very weak position. And what the Republicans want in exchange for allowing the debt ceiling to rise, they want spending cuts. The other factor in the equation is there are a lot of them who are Trump followers and who are interested in chaos, who deny, for example, the legitimacy of the Biden presidency because they think the vote was rigged. Uh, there's some very scary characters there. Jim Jordan, for example, is a congressman. He is now the chair of the Judiciary Committee in Congress. And Jordan is, to use Donald Trump's phrase, a whack job. So it's pretty dangerous. I want to know what effect it would have, and specifically on Ireland, I suppose. Okay. Um, I mean, just re reflecting on what you've been saying there about the whack jobs that are in control of the House of Representatives at the moment, um, Kevin McCarthy was a quack job. He was an election denier. Um, not a very nice person. Everything I've read about him over the years wouldn't exactly fill me with enthusiasm towards him. Um, and as you say, he, he is basically Trump's lackey at this stage. And um, to become Speaker of the House, it was a, a long, drawn-out, protracted process. He um, had to make serious concessions to the real whack jobs in the Republican Party. So he's in a very vulnerable position and, you know, he is being heavily influenced by, as you say, people who just love and want as much political and economic chaos as possible. And that is the sad reality of a large segment of the U.S. political system at the moment. But if the U.S. were to default on its debt, you know, if the debt ceiling, um, if an agreement was not reached and, and if then the, um, Congress failed to come up with some other way of getting over the debt ceiling. And, and if, as I say, the U.S. defaults on its debt, um, within the United States economy, as I say, it would seriously disrupt, um, commerce, um, because, you know, businesses, um, you know, they spend, they borrow. A lot of this is on the back of 
Treasury bill collateral. So if that were to be defaulted, it'd be huge, huge problems for the US business economy. And on, in terms of global financial markets, um, it could be absolutely chaotic. Um, and we, we've had two previous episodes of this that stand out, 2011 and 2013. And in 2011, um, the S&P, the equity index, fell 6.5% in the month leading up to the deadline. Okay, uh, the deadline, a deal was done, default was avoided, so the markets didn't fall any further. But in 2013, um, the Treasury did a simulation. Um, if, in the event of an agreement not being reached at that stage, they were predicting that U.S. equity markets would fall 30% and the U.S. dollar would fall 10%. So that is an incredible magnitude of um, decline and instability in U.S. financial markets. And, you and, know, and the treasury, U.S. Treasury bonds are the safe home. Uh, aren't they? They're, they are they're the considered, ultimate, yeah. they're the ultimate risk-free assets. They're the most liquid assets you could possibly have. And, and what I mean by liquid is that the ability to convert them into cash, they're virtually the same thing as cash. Um, and the notion that that sort of risk-free asset could possibly become the subject of default, um, you know, is, 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 is absolutely bizarre in the extreme. But that's where the mad U.S. political system has taken us at the moment. But going back to that financial market chaos, um, clearly, you know, global financial market instability has serious economic repercussions. Um, it would definitely reverberate in Europe. Um, so you could get significant financial market volatility and financial market volatility, falling equity markets, etc., rising bond yields, damage economic growth, they damage business confidence. So from a global economic perspective, um, default by the United States would be, I think, pretty calamitous. And of course, the problem is that that sort of calamitous event is coming on top of an already very uncertain and volatile situation. You know, we've seen since March of last year, the Federal Reserve Increase interest rates from zero to five and a quarter percent. We've seen three massive banking collapses in the states: Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and more recently, First Republic Bank. Um, so the the environment is already, and of course, economic growth is slowing down. And some people are still talking about recession, although it is being avoided to date. But it's a it's a volatile, uncertain period anyway. And if you superimpose on top of that debt default by the United States, the failure to reach an agreement on the lifting or waiving of the debt ceiling, well, you know, God only knows what sort of instability would result. Uh, but I, but I certainly think that it would be sufficient to push the U.S. economy over the edge into recession with huge um, repercussions for the rest of the global economy. And it, it's mad to think that the nut jobs in the Republican Party would be prepared to actually um, stand back and allow this happen. Um, it just shows where the priorities. There is no sense of acting in the greater good of the United States. Um, so it's it's a, it's a scary situation. As I said earlier, Eamon, 
you know, my sense would still be that when push comes to shove, some semblance of sanity will prevail and a deal will be done. Donald Trump in his CNN town hall last week, which was very controversial and which he said many, many terrible things, one of his comments was to urge the U.S. to default. Now, we're two weeks away as we speak from June 1st, and the former president of the United States and possibly the president again in 2024 because he will be probably the Republican candidate, he wants America to default. So that's the territory we're in, isn't it? Yeah, it is It is indeed. And and, and the reason, obviously, is that the, the sort of turmoil that would result would do serious damage to Joe Biden's uh, presidency and his chances of re-election. So yes. this is all about politics, nothing else. You can dress it up in ideological clothes about the Republican Party being you know, opposed to too much spending and so on. But at the end of the day, this is raw, dirty politics. And um, it is incredible that actually a few politicians could hold a country and indeed the global economy to ransom like this. Yeah, and uh, we shouldn't forget in, in terms of chaos, Steve Bannon, who is uh, still a big player in Trump's circles, always believes that chaos is the friend of the radicals that he leads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
now, Jim, uh, much closer to home. The Minister of Finance uh, last week revealed that we have a forecast budget surplus of 65 billion between now and 2026. It's a remarkable number. And it comes, of course, from corporation tax on multinational companies who have set up their businesses here as for a re- result of foreign direct investment. And the discussion now is what should be done with that money. And I mentioned in my introduction how many people are suffering in various ways. We have a health crisis, a housing crisis, and we have no prospect, it seems, of really getting to grips with the housing crisis. In the circumstances, in the context, Mr. McGrath is proposing that we set uh, most of this money, or some of it, a substantial amount of it, aside for a long-term savings vehicle. And uh, the the government would also, he said, be open to uh, debt reduction, that is reducing our own national debt, which is pretty serious numbers. What do you think think should happen, Jim? I mean, what is the wisest thing to do in the interest of the country? Okay, I I guess the the first thing is to set up in a context for where this is coming from. The $65 in budget surplus that is forecast out to 2026 is a massive amount of money. Um, It is flowing off the back of an economy that is doing well. Um, corporate tax receipts last year, 22.6 billion. We're going to go over 24 billion this year. It is now the second largest element of taxation for the first time ever. Um, and 10 years ago, we'd have been lucky to collect 4 billion. So we've seen massive, massive growth in corporate tax revenues. Um, 57% of those tax revenues last year came from 10 multinational companies. And in fact, around 83% of total corporation tax revenues come from the multinational sector. So you can see there, there is a huge concentration risk. We're very, very dependent on a small number of large US multinational companies, okay? Um, and we, and that's the direct corporation tax contribution, but they also Employ over employ, 20,000 yes. people, uh, and they're high-paid workers, so they pay a lot of income tax. So the whole tax system is inextricably linked to the health of the multinational sector. And of course, the Department of Finance, um, being you know, uh, con- uh, well as it should be, a conservative, careful body, okay, is worried that at some stage these remarkable bounties coming from the corporation tax side could actually disappear um, for any variety of reasons. You know, those multinational companies um, may see deterioration in their profits. They may disinvest from Ireland. Um, you know, the, the global corporation tax changes that are coming down the tracks. The Department of Finance is looking at all of this stuff and is saying that while we expect corporation tax to continue to grow, we are a bit concerned that some of it could be transitory and that it would be a massive mistake um, to repeat what we did in the run-up to the crash in 2008, that is to spend all of this money um, without showing very much in return for that spending. Because what happened in 2008 on the back of buying corporate or 
construction-related tax revenues the government spent aggressively, then the construction and development sector collapsed, and suddenly we were left with this massive level of government spending and tax revenues disappeared, and that was the crisis. So that's what the department is worried about at this stage, that this, these tax revenues may not prove um, longer-term sustainable. Okay. Yeah, I'm reminded of a phrase attributed to, well, uh, boasted almost by Charlie McCreevy, who I hasten to, to add was not in office during the crash, had left, and many people feel that may have contributed, but what he said was... If I have it, I spend it. It's a, a phrase that I'm sure you remember. I think most people who are, who are looking at uh, life uh, as adults remember it as well. Yeah, Charlie McCreevy, as you say, famously said, when, when I have it, I spend it. If I don't, I won't. <laughs> and uh, yes. but Anyway, so the Department of Finance is very mindful of that sort of history. And um, we, we now, as I say, have this situation where $65 billion is projected over the next three years. There are basically three things that can be done with this. One is it can be used to pay down debt. Um, and our outstanding debt at the end of last year was $226 billion. As a percentage of GDP, it's about 45%. Or as a percentage of this gross national income star, which is a better measure of the size of our economy, um, it's up in the mid 80s or close to 90 at the moment. Yes. So we do have a significant level of debt. Um, and when you have a significant level of debt as an individual, a company or a country, that obviously does make you vulnerable to something going wrong. So that's one option. The second option is, you know, despite the fact that the, um, economy is doing really well on many metrics, we have record unemployment. We have a 3.9% unemployment rate. So there's a lot of positive momentum in the economy, but also we do have significant problems. Um, to me, the housing situation is a disgrace. Um, it is a crisis economically, socially, politically. It is the biggest issue facing Ireland. We yes. need to address it. Secondly, the health service is under significant pressure. Um, and with an aging population, those pressures are obviously going to increase. So there is this temptation to spend a load of this money at delivering housing, um, pumping it into the health service. Uh, but the, the problem in pumping money in is that you cannot be guaranteed you're going to get the value for money or the returns that you want from that money. For yes. example, in relation to the construction sector, if you throw a whole load more money into the construction sector, uh, there is a risk it could make the situation worse because the construction sector is characterized by it's at a very high level of capacity at the moment. So there's not a lot of uh, construction workers, etc., available to absorb this increased spending in the health in the housing sector. And, and secondly, I just don't believe. The planning system here is fit for purpose. And we, right. we know, thanks to the ditch, just how dysfunctional um, on board Panola is. So the planning system is not fit for purpose. And unless you address stuff like planning, stuff like the financing, the development financing model here, unless you address all of those constraints to delivering housing, just pumping money in, will not solve the problem and actually could exacerbate 
the price inflation in the system. Yes. But, but, but that's the second option. And the third option then is the creation of a sovereign wealth fund. Um, the Norwegians did it on the back of their oil revenues going back decades. And Norway now has a sovereign wealth fund of 1.3 trillion euro. And um, it basically owns a share in virtually every company in the world at this juncture. So it's been incredibly successful. And, you know, at some stage in the future, it, well, it, it will be really important for Norway in addressing climate change challenges, all of this stuff. So those are the three options. Um, I'd be worried about just increasing spending aggressively because, as I said, there is no guarantee that increased spending will lead to better outcomes because we over the years have had way too much focus on the amount of money we spend rather than what we get in return for that money. Yes. I mean, I don't believe that the, the management structures within the health service are actually fit for purpose. And I, 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 I'm, the, the challenge here is trying to translate more spending into better outcomes for ultimately the most important element of the health service, which is the customer or the patient. So there's so much that needs to happen before you start spending more money aggressively in those areas. In relation to paying down the debt, um, I, I think there is a, a reasonably simple equation here. You look at the average cost of debt and for example, everything that the NTMA has borrowed over the last couple of years, it has at an average interest rate of 1.9%. Um, and I'm not sure what the overall debt interest rate average is at the moment, but I suspect it's about 2.5%. Okay, so that's the cost of servicing our debt. So if you can, can excuse me, create a sovereign wealth fund and get a return in excess of that, it would make sense to put that money into a sovereign wealth fund and use it over time to address climate change, to address the aging demographics. Yes. Um, and also, you know, it, it, it just, you could use the returns being generated by that fund to gradually put more money into housing and the delivery of public services. Uh, but the notion that we would turn around and spend all of this money on social housing, for example, as one TD has suggested, um, yeah. is mad. Yes, and I mean, to be fair to Minister McGrath, he referred to our aging population and the pressures that that will put on the public finances. He mentioned that in the context of what we might do. So, it, And we do know, as you said there, Jim, that I inflation in the building and development business would be a big uh, deterrent from investing too much money in it. Just uh, uh, finally, Jim, if I could ask you about that. It appears there's about 10 companies, foreign direct investors in Ireland, who are responsible for, the, the mo for most of this money. It, we shouldn't really be, and I know in particular you take great, uh, interest and, and do a lot of work in our own indigenous businesses. We shouldn't really put all our eggs in the foreign direct investment basket, should we? And there is so much required, is there not, in local businesses and our own indigenous industries that we might develop? 
Okay, uh, you mean we we have this massive concentration and dependence on the multinational sector. Um, as I said, three hundred one thousand people employed towards the end of last year, and the IDA estimates that for every one job in a multinational, there's at least zero point seven up to zero point eight percent of a job. Yes. Um, or 0.7, 0 0.8 of a job in the rest of the economy. And many of those jobs are in the SME sector, you know, sub suppliers, multinationals, you know, delivery companies, all of that stuff. Um, a myriad of businesses that are dependent on those multinationals. So you, you can't look at the two in isolation because they are very interdependent. Okay. Right. But I do, and I've always argued this that, um, 99.2% of businesses in Ireland are SME. They employ less than 250 people. Uh, they include every conceivable type of activity. So they're not a homogenous group, but they do not get, in my view, anything like enough support. I have argued, um, for the last few years, and I've, indeed I've argued it on this podcast with you, Eamon, that, uh, we need to set up, in my view, Two things. One is a state bank to fund the SME sector along yes. the lines of ACC or ICC back in the day. Secondly, I think we need to have a state agency with specific responsibility for growing, developing, nurturing, mentoring the SME sector um, along the lines of the IDA. Um, Okay, yes. some people will argue, well, we do have Enterprise Ireland, but Enterprise Ireland is focused on and doing a very good job in trying to develop the export capability of indigenous companies. But there are many indigenous companies that will never be in the exporting business. So I don't think they get enough assistance. So what we need to do is when you have concentration risk, you need to try and balance those risks by making sure that there all, are alternative economic models at play here. And uh, the SME sector is an incredibly important part of that, particularly for the rural and regional economies around the country. Okay, Jim, we're very grateful to you for joining us today. Jim Power is one of our most respected economists, and uh, we're grateful to Jim. To all of you who listen, that's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.